Welcome to the CUNY Lecture Series. In this edition, the sugar wasn't sweet. They could starve in India or work like slaves on the sugarcane plantations of British Guyana. That was a choice for thousands of Indians who left home from 1838 to 1917. One journalist, Gaitra Bahadur's great-grandmother, Sujaria, who, pregnant and alone, immigrated in 1903. Bahadur tells her story in Coolie Woman, an odyssey of indenture. Indentures provided cheap labor after Britain abolished slavery, and the indentured weren't treated much better than slaves. Women had it worse as victims of domestic violence. Bahadur tells a LaGuardia Community College audience that the abolition of indenture was the first significant victory for Indian nationalism. Thanks to all of you for being here, uh, to the Center for Teaching and Learning and the English Department for hosting me. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here to talk to you about indenture. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah? Okay. Um, as most of you probably know, uh, it was a system of labor that was in place for roughly 80 years uh, in more than a dozen colonies across the globe, from the Indian Ocean to the Caribbean. Uh, but for so many New Yorkers, it's much more than that. It's, it's personal history. Uh, it's an inheritance, really. Exactly what kind of an inheritance it is, is something we're still grappling with. Uh, it's a fundamental question. Was indenture enslavement like its predecessor, or was it freedom? It's difficult to answer that question without considering the place of women in this history. And it's impossible to even tackle that question without acknowledging a problem. Uh, in fact, answering any question about indenture involves running straight into this problem. Uh, the trouble is over sources of how we know what we know. To lay out the issue, I'm going to turn to Saidia Hartman, who's a, a professor of African American literature and history at Columbia. And she's done really deeply innovative work on enslaved women. Uh, so she tells a story. Um, two African girls died on a ship called the Recovery in 1792. And Professor Hartman wrote about one of them in her book, Lose Your Mother. Uh, both girls had apparently been whipped by the ship's captain in the days before they died. Uh, but only one of them gets to have her story told. The other disappears from history because there's only a passing reference to her in the transcripts of the captain's trial. She's referred to as Venus. Hartman mourns this disappearance. She wants to tell us Venus's story. Uh, but she struggles, balancing her desire to tell this story with the professional ethics of even trying when there she is at the very edges of the archives, at the limits of what can be known. How can she write about a woman whose very existence the sources barely acknowledge? She calls this erasure the quote-unquote secondary violence of the slave trade. She says that it, quote, resides precisely in all the stories that we cannot know and that will never be recovered. Enslaved black women appear in the archives at the very moment they disappear from it, as a line in a book of the dead, a debit in a column of property losses and gains. They appear as commodities and as corpses. They come to our attention only when something has gone wrong, as it went wrong for the two girls whipped by the slave captain. The circumstances that bring them to our attention are tragic sometimes scandalous. We don't get to know about their everyday lives. The violence of the slave trade expresses itself not only in the fact that Venus is whipped and dies, 
but that her story and her very humanity are erased from the records. The loss of her story is not an exception. It's pretty much the rule. There isn't a, a single existing narrative from a woman or girl who survived the Middle Passage. There are large gaps in the archives, and they're structural in nature. In other words, the way that power has been held or withheld has silenced certain people, born into the wrong class, race, or gender. A historian in Trinidad has spoken of our need to free ourselves from what he calls the tyranny of the text in recovering our histories. I use our in a way that connects me to Saidiya Hartman and her Venus. It's a plural possessive that draws the indentured close to the enslaved. For both of them, the text has been tyrannical. It was written by those in positions of power who obviously had a vested interest in telling the story from their own perspectives. The perspectives of the indentured, their voices are mostly missing. Since they were not, for the most part, literate, they didn't leave behind letters or diaries or many other written traces of themselves. Only two memoirs about indenture exist, and both were written by men. Uh, one was written by a man indentured in Fiji, and another by a man from Suriname. So the tyranny in the records of indenture, this silencing, applies especially to women. If indentured men were lost to history, Indentured women were even more so because they were even more powerless. I found myself dealing with the same longing as Professor Hartman, the longing to recover a lost history. I wanted to produce a narrative of Indian indentured women. In the attempt, I faced the same dilemma that Professor Hartman did. How would I find their stories? And how would I tell them when the presence of indentured women in the records is so ghostly? The women did appear in the archives from time to time. They appeared as slave women did, in moments of excess or scandal, when they had been mistreated on the ships that transported them or on the plantations where they worked. Usually they were described by others, by the various white men who held power over them, by the doctors aboard the ships, by planters and overseers, by colonial officials, by ship captains. The women did not write down their experiences in their own words. I could read them only indirectly, through the eyes of government officials who sometimes took their testimonies. Even when their words were in quotes, they weren't really their own words. Take, for example, the case of women aboard the Elsa, which is a ship that sailed to British Guiana in 1875. Four of the women aboard spoke up against the ship's surgeon superintendent. Uh, and this was a doctor whose job it was to protect the immigrants. The women charged that instead of protecting them, Dr. William Holman forced them to have sex with, with him. A commission of inquiry ultimately cleared him of any wrongdoing. But the transcript of the commission's hearings provide one rare example of indentured women apparently speaking for themselves in the historical record. But were they really speaking for themselves? There were so many ways for their words to be distorted and the truth censored. For one, their alleged rapist, a terrifying figure, stood in the same room a few feet away. The questions put to the women were cut out of the record. We have only their responses. In one case, we hear a woman denying that she was a prostitute in India. 
We can probably guess the question put to her, but it's been edited out, along with its tone and any assumptions or biases. When put on the defensive like that, though not herself the actual defendant, was she really speaking for herself in the truest sense? Nor was she speaking in English. A court official interpreted her words, paraphrasing them, perhaps even misreporting them. The women's words, when we have them, were mediated, flattened, discredited by the guilty and the complicit. It's important to say that there are glimpses of the women to be had in the archives. In pursuit of those glimpses, I spent many, many hours analyzing ship records about indenture voyages, the transcripts of inquiries into uprisings on the plantations, newspaper accounts of domestic violence, and confidential dossiers on overseers who slept with Indian women. As I said, these sources were one-sided and they were biased, full of racist and sexist stereotypes and judgments. Still, however tainted, the records were valuable. I found stories of particular women, stories of suffering, but also stories of daring, stories of victims, but also stories that showed women striving to be in charge of their own destinies. The paper trail was rich. It allowed me to reconstruct the texture of their lives. What it did not do, what it could not do, was reveal the texture of their thoughts or their feelings. To enter their unknown and in some ways unknowable history, I had to take a more personal approach. I had to turn to the self. I wove myself into the story as their descendant. So my great-grandmother, Sujaria, uh, sailed from Bihar in northern India to British Guyana in 1903 as a coolie or indentured laborer. Uh, when she left India, she was four months pregnant and traveling alone uh, without a husband by her side. And my grandfather was born during the crossing. Coolie woman reconstructs and reimagines her journey. But it's also about my own journey to uncover her backstory. Why had she left India? And why did she leave on her own, especially in that condition? Had she left a husband behind? And who was the father of the child she was carrying? In the attempt to find some answers, I traveled to her village in one of the poorest, most corrupt, and lawless parts of India. I became a, a roots tourist, if you will, with all the emotional and logistical challenges that involves. I also went back to Guyana, where I was born, to explore how domestic violence against women there, which is a, a prob problem of really uh, disturbing proportions, might be a legacy of, of this history of indenture. I interviewed a woman who survived a machete attack by her husband uh, in a provincial jail in the town where I was born. I listened to a man accused of stabbing his wife to death, blame her for what he had done. Uh, and I spent time in the flashbacks of a woman who witnessed her daughter being dismembered by her husband. All the while, I was both a journalist objectively reporting a story and a woman involved subjectively. When I say I had to turn to the self, I mean that in two ways. To write this book, I had to call on my own background, both professionally and personally. I'm a reporter. I worked for more than a decade for daily newspapers and I'm also the child of immigrants. I was six when my family came to the United States, um, and we moved from a village surrounded by sugar cane fields 
uh, where we had no phone or indoor toilet, and where electricity had just arrived uh, to Jersey City, which is, as you all know, um, you know, is, is one of the most diverse cities in the world, on the margins of the world's financial capital. Uh, so this, this location um, gave me a way of seeing the world. It helped me imagine, at least to a degree, what it must have been like for my great-grandmother. Of course, you know, being shipped to a plantation colony as a coolie in the early 20th century is not the same thing as coming to America as a voluntary migrant in the late 20th century. Uh, still, my own experience mattered when I sat down to think about how I would write this book, and specifically how I would deal with the gaps and silences in the archives. Uh, my professional and personal experience came together to suggest an approach. After all, a reporter's way of seeing, in the, seeing the world has a lot in common with a child immigrant's way of seeing the world. Both ask questions. In the immigrant's, well, sorry, in the reporter's case, this is about skepticism. Um, and in the immigrant's case, it's about identity. I think that many who immigrate as children are primed to ask not only who am I and where do I belong, but also who might I have been had my family never immigrated. We're perhaps conditioned to imagine multiple possible endings, to speculate about how things might have turned out differently if we'd never left. So as both reporter and child immigrant, the speculative approach, the questioning approach, seemed a natural one to adopt in telling this history. I recognized the tyranny of the text, but in the end, I didn't overthrow it. I interrogated it. I questioned the records as aggressively as I could, as any conscientious reporter would. Um, as I know some of you have, in here have read a few chapters, so uh, you know that I don't mean that I questioned the records in a figurative sense. I mean it very literally. Um, there are whole sections of the book composed of just of questions, one relentlessly following the next. Uh, hopefully these questions do more than communicate my inability to know the answers. Hopefully they do some hard work, uh, you know, they paint landscapes, they advance the plot, and they convey a tone, an attitude. Uh, they convey my own attitude to the archives, which couldn't possibly be a neutral one. I am, after all, a product of the history I've written about. This history is mine. It's profoundly personal, and uh, there's really no way to disavow that. I can't help but have an attitude to the archive and to its blank or its bias spots. I talk back to the archive, gave it some lip, as my mother would say. Uh, Saidia Hartman asked, how do we tell impossible stories? How can we if the traces we find of, find of them in the archives are as slim and as compromised as they are? One answer is to write a speculative history, as I've done somewhat. Uh, Coolie Woman is in many ways a narrative of what could have happened to indentured women. They could have been kidnapped, or they could have run away. They could have been escaping prostitution, or they could have been shipped directly to another form of it on the plantations. They could have been saved from abusive husbands, or they could have been exported right into the clutches of exploitative overseers or it could be all of the above. All could be true, as in a choose-your-own-ending story where every option gets chosen. A history like mine relies heavily on the subjunctive, a grammatical mood perfect for expressing doubts, 
wishes, and multiple possible truths, even ones that seem to contradict each other. I first learned about my great-grandmother at roughly your age, uh, for the college students, uh, during a trip to Guyana. And I went back with my father when I was 22. Um, it was only the second time we'd returned since leaving the country, uh, some 16 years earlier. Uh, the trip was a graduation present. And since I was the age I was, which was unformed enough to have questions about my identity, but assertive enough to pose them, um, I asked my father about our connection to India. Um, I was really kind of relentless. I asked until he answered. Uh, what he finally shared raised more questions than it answered. Um, and that's when he told me about his grandmother, who was our closest link to India. Um, this was Sujarya, the woman who had sailed from Calcutta on a midsummer's day in 1903 in the middle of the monsoons, pregnant and all alone. The book I ended up writing about her exit from India a century ago began in truth with my own story of coming to America and not quite knowing my place here. Um, I grew up in Jersey City, as I said. Um, it's about a third foreign born. And there was an anti-Indian gang active there when I was about 12. Uh, they called themselves the Dot Busters. Some of you might have heard of, of this. Uh, they beat an Indian man to death, um, that was actually in Hoboken, and they almost killed another. Uh, kids carrying broken bottles, who may or may not have been part of that gang, chased my father once. Um, another time someone spat at him. Someone else spray-painted Hindus go home on our garage door. Uh, there we were, being targeted as Indians. And I had never stepped foot in India, nor had my parents, nor had my grandparents. Um, India was a blank spot for us although a blank spot with clear and concrete repercussions for our lives. And that's actually why I was so fascinated and kind of obsessed, really, with Sujaria. Wounded identity had everything to do with it. Consider it the bewilderment of a double diaspora. Over the years, I followed my fascination with Sujaria whenever I could. I followed it until I began to see that this family story, the private mystery of her leaving India, was actually part of a public history waiting to be told. I think of it as a, a lost history within a lost history, and that is the story of Indian women within the story of Indian indenture. And what makes this hidden history even more striking is the sheer scale of what we're talking about. Uh, by 1917, only 200 women, roughly, had come to America from India. Um, at, this, at the time, there were a few thousand Indian men living in the United States. But by 1917, half a million Indians had been transported to the Americas to work on plantations in the West Indies. 30% of them were women. And that's about 150,000 women. 150,000 women born in India who lived and worked in the Western Hemisphere long before the public imagines them living and working here. Uh, so we're talking about a significant mass movement of people. The traffic in coolies, or indentured laborers, was a third the size of the British slave trade. The British transported slightly more than 3 million enslaved laborers across the globe, compared to slightly more than a million indentured laborers. And these were, these were the vanguard of the Indian diaspora that many of us are familiar with. And they were the first South Asians to immigrate in significant numbers. Uh, if Indian women didn't come to the US in large numbers in the 19th century, then why did they go to Guyana and Trinidad and Jamaica? Uh, the scholar Sucheta Mazumdar has done some really fascinating work that explores why rural Indian women 
from agricultural, but well, yeah, rural Indian women might not have migrated. It's not just that culture kept women from leaving, she argues, but also that women were indispensable to the family economy at home. The men could be spared to earn money abroad. The women couldn't be. They were way too busy fulfilling their multiple roles as producers and reproducers. But wasn't this roughly the same supply of women available to come to the new world indentured? What made the difference? I think the difference lies in the kind of migration that indenture was. It wasn't entirely voluntary, but semi-forced. It came in the aftermath of slavery and it supplied workers to replace the enslaved. This matters for two reasons. First, abolitionists in the British public and parliament were watching, ready to denounce indenture as a new form of slavery. And they were looking at how the institution of family fared under indenture, since family relationships were shattered under slavery. Secondly, indenture was a formalized, government-regulated system. There were rules and a bureaucracy. And the rules said that no indentureship could sail unless there were 40 women aboard for every 100 men. There was a quota to meet. There were officials whose job it was to meet that quota, immigration officials in uh, Calcutta and Madras, and recruiters in the, in the hinterlands of India. And there was even added incentive for those recruiters to sign up women. They were paid a higher commission for every female recruit than every male recruit. As you can imagine, this led to dishonesty in some cases of outright kidnapping. You could say that the, the demand for, for migrant women was artificially set for indenture. And an entire official apparatus existed to target the supply of would-be migrant women, the way there wasn't for Indian immigration to the US. The women targeted to go were, for the most part, not the ones that Mazumdar was talking about, ones with a secure and, and valued place in a family. Indentured women left India for some of the same reasons that indentured men did. Many were fleeing caste discrimination, debt to landlords, and famine. However, women had even more reasons to flee, even greater oppression to escape, than men did. A great many were widows fleeing a society that shunned them. Historically, uh, widows in northern India couldn't remarry, especially if they were upper caste, nor could they inherit property. If they had no sons to support them, the chances were high that they were hungry and impoverished, and they could be forced to sit on their husband's funeral pyres, a practice known as sati. And although this was ultimately banned and widow remarriage legalized, those reforms in the law were largely ignored on the ground. Indentures recruiters looked for women who had no one, no one to provide for them and no one to prevent them from going. They targeted the most desperate. In addition to widows, these included sex workers. They also included women forced to leave husbands. Husbands who beat them, husbands who accused them of infidelity, or husbands who were themselves unfaithful. Whether thrown out of their homes or running from them, quote unquote, coolie women were for the most part, like my great-grandmother, traveling alone. Roughly two-thirds of all women who ever left India indentured were classified as single. The word, of course, was not used in the same way that we use it. In most cases, they had been married, or still were, but had been uprooted from their fa families for a host of different reasons. And on landing in their new worlds, they found themselves the, the scarcer sex. A men enormously outnumbered women in all the indenture colonies. 
So this gave the women some leverage in, in choosing partners. Uh, they couldn't be completely independent because they were paid a third less for a day's work. Uh, they had to deal with a discriminatory wage rate. And it meant that they had to continue to depend economically on men after leaving India. But arguably, they could, they could pick which men to depend on. Even if overseers arranged matches, which they often did, the women did not necessarily have to stay. Many could and did leave partners, sometimes more than once, and sometimes they left for white overseers or plantation managers. In choosing partners, they gravitated to men who could help them endure or even escape the brutality of the plantation. The men in charge of work gangs, for instance, had privileges that made them attractive to immigrant women. Men who'd been in the colony the longest were also favored because they tended to be more secure financially. In some cases, they were even able to pay off a woman's indenture uh, fee and, and set her free. Indentured women were not exactly like Jane Austen heroines, practicing love as a form of social mobility. Whatever power they may have had sexually, because there was a shortage of women, has to be put in context. They were plantation workers, ultimately, subject to all the ways that plantations can control their workers. Still, they do seem to have used their scarcity to survive as best they could in an exploitative environment. And the shortage of women wasn't purely empowering. Women were sexually exploited on ships and on plantations um, by men of all races and all ranks. And they were also victims of domestic attacks and killings. Uh, beginning in the mid-19th century, indentured men began reacting violently to the, to the sexual leverage exercised by their partners. So in Guyana, more than 167 women were killed by intimate partners or would-be intimate partners between 1859 and 1917. And mostly the murders were attacks with machetes, their tools from the, the cane fields. And Guyana wasn't the only scene of the crimes. Throughout the sugar colonies, from Trinidad to Fiji, disputes over women led to horrific and frequently fatal violence. Uh, so in sum, indentured women migrated from positions in India where they often had no choice, no choice except to leave, to a place where they could exercise a limited degree of choice. Uh, but the consequences of those choices were too often unspeakable. Questions of gender and sexuality are key to understanding the experience of indenture because of the naked numbers involved. As I said, we're talking about a large-scale migration of female workers here. But their significance transcends the statistics. The fate of women and their position in the new world was central to the, the debate about the very character of indenture. Was it a new form of slavery? Did it liberate the socially and economically oppressed? Or did, did it shackle them in different ways, uh, just in a different setting? When British imperialists argued for indenture, they turned to the example of women. Uh, for instance, when blacks in Guyana attacked the system and their argument was that this was a way to import cheap scab labor and a strategy by the planters to undercut their own ability to negotiate for better wages. Uh, the newspaper of the colonists pointed to the enhanced position of Indian women as the reason for Indian immigration to continue. Uh, it editorialized, quote, the fact that she receives her wages in her own hands at the pay table gives her a feeling of independence and renders her husband less domineering than he would be in India. 
in another example, an archdeacon in the capital remarked that in India, women were known for their meekness. In Guyana, he wrote, quote, quite the opposite prevails. We have known some Indian women to keep their husbands in proper subjection as their sisters do or try to in the West. So the rhetoric of the white man's burden was fully deployed. According to this reasoning, indenture had higher moral, moral purpose, which was to em emancipate Indian women from illiberal social customs in the subcontinent, to save the brown woman from the brown man. It was yet another reform, like the abolition of sati, and that again is the practice of widows burning on their husband's funeral pyres, or laws to allow widows to remarry or inherit land. But indentured women were also essential to the rhetoric of those who fought against indenture. Its abolition was the first significant victory by the nationalists in India. Gandhi and C.F. Andrews mounted a very effective campaign. As they mobilized opponents to indenture, they asked Indians if they weren't ashamed to be quote unquote harlots and helots in the eyes of the world. Indenture meant that their men were seen as slaves and their women as prostitutes, morally ruined by a system that sexually exploited them. With the shortage of women on the plantations, their bodies became a symbolic battleground, a way for them either to advance or be degraded, depending on which side you believe. My book reaches no definitive conclusions. Certainly the evidence of their dismembered bodies, chopped up by cutlasses from the cane fields, is hard for the soul to shake. I suggest that the answer might be different for each individual indentured woman. It's impossible to arrive at an answer that is universally true, especially given the, the limits to the material in the archives. So another way to tell an impossible story is to write about the impossibility itself. And my book is like that. It's a, hit, it's a history written with the archive, but also against the archive. It's a history that, partly by using cheeky questions, exposes the archive for the fiction that it sometimes is. The archive becomes the subject itself. I made the elusiveness of Indian women a subject in itself, too. The image of Indian women hiding and then revealing themselves recurs throughout the book. If I could only catch glimpses of them in the archives, then I decided I'd dramatize that. I was trying very hard to make the silences in the archives work for me. The historian uh, Natalie Zeman Davis has spoken brilliantly about how she not only copes with the gaps and silences in the archives, but puts them to work for her. What does a blank spot in the records tell us? In her case, she was writing a history of a North African diplomat and traveler who was captured by Christian pirates and taken to the Pope in the 16th century. Her diplomat, who was a very learned man, taught Arabic to church figures in Rome, uh, yet none of them mentioned him in their letters, diaries, poems, or other writings. Davis interpreted this as an indication of his lowly marginal status in Rome. He wasn't important enough to be mentioned. I applied a similar analysis to indentured women. I asked what their silence in the sum total of history tells us. How should we interpret it? Is it purely a sign of their lack of power? Or can their silence be seen as strategic to a certain extent? Uh, what I mean by that is an attempt to, to keep secrets and to cope with trauma. Even when indentured women talked to their children and their grandchildren about leaving India, uh, there were gaps and silences. 
there was a reluctance to, t to share the full story of what had happened to them. And it's very possible that my great-grandmother would not have even wanted me to tell her story. I had to ask if it was at all possible that as the feminist poet Adrian Rich has put it, silence can be a plan, rigorously executed, the blueprint of a life. And I had to come to terms with the fact that the stories people tell us can be as unreliable as the ones that archives tell. Where Indian women could not speak for themselves, I looked for other ways of recovering their experiences and their commitments, for imagining their values and their sense of self. Where written traces were lacking, I looked for visual traces and for clues in the oral tradition. I supplemented the records with alternate sources. I used folk songs, and I used the Hindu epic, the Ramayan, uh, which is a story of exile and also of women's honor threatened. I asked if the epic, which was as tall and present in the immigrants' lives as sugarcane was, might have played a role in the killings of indentured women on the plantations. When they left their men for other men, were they attacked in a form of honor killing? Uh, did their dismemberment take as its model the treatment that the epic's heroes, the god Ram and his brother Lakshman, meted out to their demon adversary's sister, who was a widow like many indentured women? When she sexually solicited the god and his brother, Ram instructed Lakshman to cut off her nose. The archives told me that this is how many indentured women were attacked with machetes, with the aim of cutting off their noses, uh, which is a punishment for lost honor. I also wove oral and family histories into the narrative. I interviewed descendants of indenture to record the stories of leaving India that had come down to them through the generations. I listened to audio tapes of interviews with indentured women conducted by a sociologist and linguist in Trinidad in the 1970s and the 1980s. And I read transcripts of similar interviews coming from Fiji at the same time. Uh, sadly, no, interview, no such interviews were done in Guyana before the last survivor of indentured died. Uh, I was able to spend a few hours in Long Island talking with an elderly woman who had been born in plantation barracks during the indenture era. She had not been indentured herself, but she had directly experienced life on a sugar estate in the very hovels where the indentured workers lived. Her name uh, is Maharaji Bahuri, and she had this very elaborate tattoo snaking up her left forearm. And my paternal grandmother had one like that. And so I'm, I'm told did my great-grandmother Sujaria. So I asked Maharaji Bahuri what the tattoo meant, and she told me that it was called Sita's Kitchen. Uh, Sita was Ram's wife. Again, we're talking about the epic, the Ramayan. And in Hinduism, uh, she's the very embodiment of the perfect wife, which is chaste and dutiful. In the parts of Northeast India where most of the indentured came from, no bride could cook for her in-laws uh, unless she was inked with this tattoo. Uh, the tattoo had survived the crossing, and for generations, Indian women in the Caribbean continued to be inked with it when they were married. I was completely taken with this tattoo, and I did a risky thing. I asked if its persistence could tell us something about the importance of family to indentured women and their children and even their grandchildren. These women, who in many cases had been wronged by the patri patriarchal institution of family in northern India, who had also seen that institution disrupted and transformed by indenture, 
continue to display a symbol of the traditional housewife on their arms. The tattoo of Sita's kitchen, written on the body of a 96-year-old in Long Island, was as valid a source to me as the reports of immigration agents who denounced quote-unquote coolie women as women of immoral character, bad in India, and bound to be equally bad in Guyana. So finally, uh, I turned to photographs, both as a source and a storytelling device. In an interview about her biography of Benjamin Franklin's sister, the historian and writer Jill Lepore said that she was relieved in a way that she didn't have a picture of her subject. Uh, Jane Franklin never sat for a portrait. And Lepore admits that she would have liked to know if Jane was strikingly beautiful or physically small, because such details do have an impact on a person's life, after all. Um, in that sense, they're relevant. Uh, still, women are judged so much by the way they look that Lepore says she was glad to be free of that burden. In the case of indentured women, since their voices are so absent from the archives, the photographs assume extra importance. They take on extra weight. In a sense, their bodies are all we have to read. I may not have had a pathway to their thoughts, but I did have a glimpse of their faces. I was more fortunate than Jane Franklin's biographer because I was able to look at the faces of a few indentured women. And this is thanks largely to the Caribbean tourist industry, which was taking hold at the same time that uh, photographs and cameras were becoming widely accessible. Uh, in the 1880s, a photographer named Felix Moran with a studio in Port of Spain, took dozens of photos of Indian women in indenture-era Trinidad. And similar images were produced in Jamaica and Guyana. Uh, they ended up on post postcards that sold an image of the Caribbean as a tropical paradise for North American and European vacationers. And they form an official visual archive, one, in, one which allows us to look at them while they return our gazes. These images exist in striking contrast to photos that come to us through family albums, an unofficial archive. I'm lucky enough to actually have photographs of all four of my great-grandmothers. Okay, and so I'm going to show you a slideshow. And what it does is juxtapose these two sets of photographs, um, the commercial images and the family images. Um, I think it shows yet another way in which the archive can be a fiction, a rhetorical construct, because there's so much emphasis on the women's physical allure in the postcards, on their clothes, their jewelry, their beauty. And we can talk more after about the difference between the two sets of photos if you want to. Um, but here they are. Um, they're set to a folk song, uh, which is called Ultan Sultan. The voice you'll hear belongs to my friend, Rajiv Mohabir, who's a poet, Guyanese American. He was just selected for Best American Poets 2015. Um, but what he did was he, he spent a lot of time with his grandmother, uh, who was the daughter of indentured immigrants. She uh, was born in the same town I was born in. Um, and he spent time uh, recording her folk songs, folk songs that had been handed down to her from northern India. Um, and then he translated them into Creolese, which uh, you know, is the English spoken in Guyana and also into standard English. Two more pages, don't worry. <laughs> okay. So I spent a good deal of time talking about how the personal provided ways to tell the stories of indentured women. Uh, Saidiya Hartman, when confronted with the violence of the archives, asked an almost existential question. Why bother? What's the point? If the stories we find in the archives are not about the women themselves, 
What about the forces that turn, turn them into commodities and corpses? Why tell those stories? Do we risk reenacting the injustices of the archives? Are we in danger of reproducing the prejudices we find there? Is it wrong to look again at the women the way colonial officials did? What can we do to make sure the act of narration isn't a way of re-traumatizing the dead? It seems to me that the answer to why do it is that we're still living with the legacies of that history. The past isn't past. We have to acknowledge, as Hartman has put it, quote, the ongoing state of emergency in which black life remains in peril. The living inhabit a reality where they are the afterlife as, of property, as she puts it. I think a similar statement could be made about Indo-Caribbean reality today. To render the lives of indentured women in their full humanity, to go beyond the coroner's inventories of the harm done against them, the graphic accounting of the number of cuts inflicted by their husbands and how deep each one was, I traced the legacies of indenture to Guyana in 2010. I detailed the historical murders of Indian women, but then I proceeded to describe the ongoing violence against them the alarming rates of domestic violence in, the re in recent years. Many Indian women in Guyana continue to be killed by their partners who cite the same motive of infidelity and use the same weapon, the machete from the cane fields. I use the present as a strategy to cope with the, limbs to, the limits to the archives to let the descendants of Kuli women speak for them. But I'd also like to cite the present as the reason to even bother trying to tell the story given those limits. The present is not only how we tell impossible stories, it's why we tell them. Professor Hartman at, talks about the importance of narrative in restoring humanity to figures who appear as statistics, commodities, corpses. Story is key because it has a beginning, middle, and end. It moves through time, bridging the past with the present. Hartman argues that stories can provide, quote, a home in the world for a mutilated and violated self. For whom do they provide a home? Does a Kuli woman provide a home in the world for my great-grandmother and women like her? Does it provide one for me and women like me? I'd like to think that the answer to both questions is yes. Telling the stories of indentured women gives them a place in history, a symbolic home, and it also gives their descendants a home in a, a sense of self, of identity. Thanks. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.